Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Daniel. I have the privilege of preaching this morning on this Easter Sunday. If you are our guest this morning, if you're new to our Sunday gathering, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for deciding to gather with us on Easter Sunday and celebrate all that Easter means. Easter is a big deal for us. We don't believe Easter is ultimately about chocolate bunnies, our eating lots of, lots of food, our having big family get-togethers. We believe Easter is ultimately about celebrating Jesus' resurrection and praising him for the hope that we get and have in him. Amen? Amen. Uh, Resurrection is, and Jesus' resurrection is so foundational to Christianity that without it, Christianity would not be Christianity. If, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, the Christian faith would be pointless and futile. If, if you, like myself, identify as a Christian and Jesus did not raise from the dead, you are, we are, a bunch of dummies. Because we're worshiping a homeless, abandoned Jewish dead guy from Nazareth who claimed to be the Son of God, yet died on a Roman cross and proved himself to be a liar or a lunatic. But if you are convinced, like I am, intellectually and experientially, that Jesus is who he said he is, that he really lived, he really died, he really rose again, this is historical and true and compelling and powerful, then we have much to celebrate today, don't we? We have much to be thankful for today as we celebrate Easter. So if you can't tell, I'm pretty excited this morning. And I'm excited not only because it's Easter and this is the most important day for Christians to celebrate, Jesus' resurrection, but we're starting something new, right? Not only are we celebrating God doing new things in Jesus, life after death, we're starting a new study through a book that is powerful, a book that uh, changed and was the catalyst for Martin Luther. It was his favorite book, the man who helped catalyze the Protestant Reformation. It is a book that when you think about the the realities and the implications of what is found in here can change your life. They're life-changing. So we're going to spend the next 15 weeks unpacking this book together, the book that is called Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatians. Now it's a small book. It's a small letter, but this book packs some punch. One pastor called it Gospel Dynamite. This is a letter that was written most likely 15 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. It is probably and possibly uh, the first book or letter that we have in our New Testament. It is Paul defending and trying to maintain the unity and the purity of the gospel. And as we look at this morning, the, the title of our study through Galatians is Freedom in Christ. Because what we're looking at is there is no other gospel, there's nothing else, it's only by the grace of God and in his grace through the gospel that we get to experience true freedom. There's nothing like what the gospel brings, and that's, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next 15 weeks. And, and Paul seems to be so excited and passionate about this gospel, it's just overwhelming and flowing in him, that like in the first five verses, the verses that we're looking at this morning, right out of the gate, there's a powerful summary of the gospel. And he overflows in praise and giving honor to God the Father. So I pray as we study this passage this morning, just the first five verses of this letter, that we will do the same. That we will see that Jesus has delivered, he has delivered us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father, and that we will respond in giving glory and honor and praise to the Father. That's where I'm going. 
guys with me? Uh, Well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles uh, with me to that passage that was read aloud to us by our friend Peter, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And as you're doing that, let me also turn your attention to this handout that you should have received on your way in. Um, If you don't have this handout, there should be some that are still on the bar there. And on the front, you can see there's a welcome, there's some events about what we do, and uh, like our upcoming men's retreat, and ways that you can connect with us. But on the back is our sermon title, and the passage, and a list of five questions. And these five questions are going to be uh, on every page or every sermon that we go through through Galatians. Like some of you guys were here through Judges, and we went through those three questions every week. This is what we're doing through Galatians, these five questions. And these five questions uh, will be a way to frame and guide our sermons, uh, but they'll also be a tool that we are praying will be used to equip you to study God's Word for yourself. So... Uh, If you are a guest this morning and you never hear a second, our future sermon through Galatians, if you never return to one of our Sunday gatherings through this study, uh, please take these questions and use them. If you are curious or skeptic about what, how do I study the Bible and what is Christianity all about? So before we get into the text, I just wanted to walk through those questions and briefly explain them before we get into Galatians 1. The first question you see there is, what does the text say? This is important for us as Christians. We don't want to preach and teach based on our opinions. At least I don't. Hopefully you don't want to hear sermons that are like that, right? We want sermons that are rooted and communicated and committed from the text of the scriptures. We want to be clear. What does the text say? What does it not say? And from that, that proclamation from the scriptures, we look at question two. What does the text mean? Because of what the text says and what is found there, how do we interpret it? How do we make sense of it? How do we understand it? What did it mean for the original audience? And what does it mean for us today? That's what's behind question two. You guys still with me? Question three is how do we naturally resist it? And this is a very important question as we engage the scriptures. This is a question that we we might not have asked before as we study the scriptures or might might not be familiar with. But oftentimes in the past, Uh, I have or other people can engage the scriptures simply with, what does the text say? What does it mean? And then how do I apply it to my life? Right? So what what is Paul saying here? And what is he meaning? What are some principles that we can take? And then how do I do it? How do I apply it? There's a fundamental problem with this approach, though. It misses the gospel. (laughs) It misses grace. The problem with this approach is that it's more in line with every other major world religion than the gospel and the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Because religion at its core is, the teaching is, do more or do this. It's fundamentally different than the core of the gospel and the Christian faith, which is, it's done. Jesus has done it. This is, in fact, what the resurrection means. It's finished. Jesus has done it, and he's proven it, and he's secured it. It's done. It's finished. We don't believe that the Bible is ultimately about us. I don't. (laughs) The Bible is ultimately about God and most specifically Jesus. So, all right, a newsflash for us this this morning. We're not the heroes of this Bible. The Bible is not ultimately about us. We are the broken sinners. (laughs) We are the ones who cannot do what God's word says on our own. And even after someone believes and gives their life to Jesus, there's still a struggle. 
there's still a struggle of, of faith and, and the old self and the new self and the flesh and the spirit. They're in, in opposed to one another. So we don't naturally want to submit to and obey God's law on our own. And in this way, the Bible oftentimes reveals how deeply sinful we are and, and God's law reveals our inability to do it on our own. And if we don't explore this question of how we resist God's word, then we can read, teach, study, and, and preach the Bible and give people a false idea that they have what it takes within themselves to do what God asks of us. This can lead to a great self-righteousness and pride because I can do what God's word says better than the rest of these people around me, or it leads to a crushing burden of despair that we cannot obey all that God's word commands. We don't want to stop there, right? We're not the heroes. Jesus is. That's what question four is. How is Jesus the hero? How did he accomplish or do the thing we naturally resist, right? So although we naturally resist and we can't do all that God has commanded in our own strength and ability, we come to Jesus and examine how he's better. We come to Jesus and examine how he has fulfilled what God's word says or how he's the pointer to what God's word is, is communicating, right? We want the preaching and the study of God's word in summary to be, look at Jesus, behold him, gaze upon his beauty and his glory. We want the, the crux of our messages to be, see the beauty of the gospel and believe it. And out of that belief flows obedience. Does that make sense? We don't want the crux of our message to be try harder, learn more, just accomplish these principles and practices because we actually are, we obey and submit to Jesus as we learn more about the grace and grace is the motivation and the fuel for obedience. The gospel changes us from the inside out and the gospel is what changes us, it's not trying to tweak our emotions, our bend, our wills. You guys still with me? Does that make sense? Grace is what leads us to do what God's word said, and that's what's at the heart of question five. How does that, meaning that reality, how is Jesus the hero, Jesus' finished work, all that God has done most clearly revealed in Jesus, how does the gospel empower me to obey what it says and means? And so the gospel doesn't make obedience unnecessary or void. Grace is not a license for sin. It's a power that transforms us. Grace doesn't make obedience unnecessary. It makes it possible. So we get to obey, and we increasingly learn to submit to all of God's words. So the elders and I wanted to frame all of our sermons around these questions, and we hope that you have clear answers as you read, read and study and hear the gospel preached each week. I'm excited about this. I'm hopeful that you can use this as a tool in, in, in reading the scriptures and how to engage God's word so that you see Jesus more clearly and experience God's grace more deeply. Amen? How's everyone doing so far? Ready to dive in now? Okay, Galatians 1. Let's do it. The first word in verse 1 is Paul. Paul wrote this letter. And it's important, right? It, it makes a difference who wrote a letter, who, who you receive a letter from, right? It's the reason why you, you read junk mail differently than you read a letter from a friend. It's the reason that you don't call, un, you, don't, you might not answer from unknown numbers or telemarketers, but hopefully you want to Take a phone call from your friend. Paul wrote this letter, and, and Paul was formerly a hyper-religious Pharisee 
who hated Christianity and, and hated, he was seeking to end the Christian movement, but he had a profound encounter with God by in his grace, Jesus was revealed to him and it changed the trajectory of his life forever. He went from wanting to end Christianity to advance it. And he went about these missionary journeys, planting churches and proclaiming the gospel and seeking to make disciples. And he wrote this letter after a missionary journey and he wrote it to encourage these Galatians. After one of these journeys, see, he wrote it to defend the purity and, and the power of the gospel. So I think that makes a difference as we study this letter that this was written from Paul, right? a man who was so impacted by the gospel, he doesn't want those who, who hear it to lose it or to believe something else. He opens with his name and he tells the churches of Galatia that he's an apostle. He's not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and the Son of God who raised him from the dead, right? This is what we're celebrating on Easter. God has raised Jesus from the dead. To all the brothers, and the word there could also be, the text could say brothers and sisters who are with me, meaning Paul is writing this from a team. There's a, there's a unified message behind this. And he's writing to the churches of Galatia. So the churches that he planted throughout this area, he's writing a letter that's supposed to be read amongst these congregations. Then he gives a blessing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A powerful summary of the gospel in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Then he ends with a praise and amen. And what I love about Galatians is when we look at that first question, what does the text say? It's pretty straightforward. Paul doesn't waste a lot of words in this letter. It's pretty clear. What the text says is that Paul is writing this letter to Galatia, to these multiple congregations. He's giving a greeting, a blessing, and peace. He's reminding them of the gospel, and then he's praising God. Pretty simple, now, pretty simple right? Pretty straightforward. When we look at that question too, what does the text mean? Let's look at why might Paul expand on this idea of an apostle and not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, right? He spends more time explaining this, this idea of apostleship more than any other letter that he writes in, that we have in the New Testament. And he was writing this because that this text means that Paul is trying to secure and anchor what he's about to say in the rest of the letter. He's trying to say that he's not like a mere man, he has a unique apostolic authority that's not from man or by man. It, it's unique, it's special, it's divine because he's commissioned directly from Jesus and from God. He has unique, special authority. And Paul mentions this because if he were not an apostle, then the Galatians could have dismissed what he said as, oh, that's just that guy, Paul. That's just his human teaching that, that we can disagree with or reject but if Paul's an apostle that has a divine, unique commission from God as an apostle, then rejecting his authority is rejecting God's authority. Rejecting his words is rejecting Jesus' words. It's a big deal. So Paul here is not on some sort of power trip. He's not inflated or prideful or vain. He's defending his unique apostolic authority because in so doing, he's defending the unique power and purity of the gospel. That's why he's setting this up in this way. And then he says grace and peace. And these aren't just simple words that like we might use of, hey, what's up? Hey, man, glad to be here. Good to see you. These are powerful words for Paul. 
Grace means God's unmerited favor and goodwill. Grace means an undeserved act of kindness. Paul was all about grace, right? Because remember, he was a a persecutor, a hater of the church, going to kill Christians when Jesus saved him only by grace. Like Paul is so impacted by grace that he actually mentions grace at the beginning and end of every single one of his letters. He is all about grace, and he wants everyone to know and receive and cherish this same grace. And then he also says peace, which would be uh, the traditional Jewish greeting of shalom. It means harmony and tranquility and, and flourishing, and this comes only from God and through Jesus. And then like I mentioned earlier, verse 4 is that compact summary of the gospel, reminding them, these Christians, of all that Jesus has done, that he has given himself for our sins, to deliver us. Now, the word deliver there could also mean rescue. It's the same word that's used in the book of Acts when Stephen describes the Israelites being rescued from the Egyptian slavery. It's the same word that's used in describing Peter's rescue from prison and from Herod the king. It's the same word that's used to describe Paul's being rescued from an angry mob who wanted to deliver and seize him and kill him. So as the Israelites were rescued from Egyptian slavery, as Peter was rescued, as Paul was rescued, Jesus rescues us from the present evil age. And this present evil age means that this present age is evil. (laughs) It doesn't mean that somehow God isn't in control. The Bible affirms that God is sovereign and in control of all things. He has made all things. But this present age is evil because not everyone acknowledges God's good and gracious rule. This present age is evil because much of humanity is self-ruled, self-governed, and self-reigning, which only leads to destruction and and ruin and rebellion and sin. Because when self is king, God is not. And when God is not king, people out of rebellion's defiance act in ignorant unbelief, and this is what the Bible refers to as evil. And Jesus gave himself to rescue us from this evil from ourselves, from the tyranny of sin, Satan, and death. That's the present evil age that God has rescued us from. And all of this was not because of us. It's not because we came up with this great plan of how we could be saved. This was all according to the will of our God and Father. This plan was according to God's sovereign and perfect rule and reign. Salvation is by God, it's from God, it's through God, it's planned by God, and it's for God. That's why he says at the end, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. He gives that compact that summary of the gospel and he overflows with praise. God has done all of the work. He is the only one who deserves the credit and the glory. And as you're sitting there and you think, well, now we see that what the text says and means that Paul is kind of shoring up his apostolic authority for what he's about to say. He's reminding the Galatians of the gospel. How do we resist that? Like, there's not really an explicit command in here. And we see that Paul doesn't have any commands in verse 5, or the verse 5 verses. There's no explicit things to obey, but I would submit to you that we do and can submit to some of the concepts and ideas that are presented in this passage. The first one being, we can resist Paul's apostolic role and divine authority. How many of you have heard or even said this uh, recently or heard this? Well, Paul was just a mere man. He has kind of a different authority than Jesus. And when Paul seemingly disagrees with Jesus, 
I'm going to go with Jesus. But modern theologians are saying this. Well, Paul was just a mere man, so his writings are fallible. We do this. We say, well, I don't really like what Paul says, so my, my, what I prefer and like is better, so I'm going to write Paul off as just a mere man. I think we can also resist God's grace and God's rescue by grace. We can resist the gospel because, quite frankly, the gospel can be offensive to us. We have to admit that we need rescue and deliverance in the gospel. We have to admit that we need help, that we're lost, that we're broken, that helpless. Right? You don't rescue someone or deliver someone unless they're in need of rescue, right? And we can resist that. We can think, well, I have all the answers in myself. And we turn to self-help and self-improvement and self-promotion and self-gratification. And apart from God's grace and intervention in our lives, we can be so blinded by our own pride and self-centeredness, so lost that we don't really think we need this rescue. And we can become callous to it. The Bible describes us as not being sick in our sins, but dead in our sins. You know the difference between being sick and dead? When you're dead, you can't feel anything. <laughs> can't do anything for yourself. Can't get help. You're dead. But when you're sick, right? many of you guys have been sick this week. Seems like our church has been hit pretty hard recently. When you're sick, you, you can at least get some help. You can take some medicine. You can go to the doctor. You can seek a remedy. But in our sin, we can be so deceived that we don't even think we need help. We resist God's grace. Maybe you think, well, Daniel, that's, that might be true for those non-Christians. But I believe the gospel. I don't resist God's grace. <laughs> I believe God's grace. A way that we can do this as Christians is simply by forgetting it. By living as if it's not really functional in our life. Remember, this letter was written to Christians. And I get the sense... You know, as the Galatians were hearing this introduction to the letter and they're hearing verse 4, Paul's summary of the gospel, they might have thought something like, yeah, Paul, we know the gospel. You baptized us. We get it. Right? And we can do that as Christians too. Like, I don't, how do I oppose God's grace? I get it. One pastor said it like this. The point of the book of Galatians is that you think you know the gospel and you don't. You think you apply the gospel, and you don't. You think you understand the gospel and have worked it into your heart, but you don't. What Paul is doing here in reminding the Galatian Christians of the gospel is introducing and laying the foundation of the rest of the book, which is the reality of you do not move on from the gospel. You move deeper into it. The gospel is not something that you initially believe to be saved, and then you somehow progress by hard work and obedience. You progress in the Christian faith by moving deeper into the gospel. There's a sense in which if you say, yeah, Daniel, I get the gospel. You don't. Because change happens as the gospel is driven deeper into our hearts. We begin to get the gospel by saying, man, I, I'm starting to begin to understand all that God has done for us in Christ. I'm learning more and more about what the gospel means and how it transforms my life. This is how change happens. The more the gospel becomes central and functional in our life, and it, the more it permeates every aspect of our life. Lastly, I think we can resist this passage simply by not doing what Paul does in verse 5. 
we don't give praise and honor and glory to God. We love our own glory. We love to manufacture and bring glory to ourselves, don't we? We post things on social media and continually check back. How many likes and comments do I have? I want glory. I want recognition and affirmation. We dress and act in a way that is longing for people to praise us and honor us. We think that we're so great, right? But if we're honest with ourselves and humble in our thinking, and if God has granted us that grace to see clearly, we know that we're not that awesome. We know that living for the praise of others is enslaving and crushing and crippling. We know that we always want more and we're not satisfied. And we feel worse after than before. And we know that although the gospel might be offensive initially, the gospel is sweet and good news and delightful. And this is the part of the sermon, the, the question that we get to question for, that we get to make much of Jesus. And Paul does an easy, like he makes this easy for us, doesn't he? In this passage, Jesus is the hero. How did he accomplish or do anything we naturally resist? He's done everything. <laughs> That's what Paul says here. Paul makes it so simple and clear for us. Jesus has given himself up for us, for our sins, to deliver us, to rescue us. It's according to his plan and his will. Although we have resisted God and we continually resist him, we continually forget his grace or oppose it. We continually are not as gracious with others as God has been gracious with us. We continually want our own glory and praise instead of God's. Jesus has done it all. He has come to rescue us and give himself up for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's done. Jesus is not just a good teacher who has come to give us some teaching that we have to try and work hard to apply. He didn't just come to give us some good teaching or here's pra three practical ways that you can become a better you. <laughs> this is what's so unique and beautiful about the message of Christianity. Because every other religious leader or founder of religions, they were a teacher. Muhammad, Buddha, John Smith, teachers. Jesus did teach, but ultimately he came to save He came to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. I heard a pastor say it like this, right? Imagine that you see a woman drowning in the water. It doesn't help her at all if you just throw her a manual on how to swim. <laughs> She's drowning. To help this woman drowning, you throw her a rope. And Jesus did not come to give us principles that we needed to follow or work hard to try to earn our salvation. He has done it. The beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus just isn't the rope in this illustration. We are sinking and drowning in our sins, sinking to the bottom. And Jesus is not just the guy at the edge of the water saying, come on. He's not just our divine cheerleader saying, just try harder. <laughs> He's not the swim coach with the whistle saying, kick, kick, kick. He jumps into the water, gives up his own life, and saves us in our place. This is what the word for means in this sense, on our behalf. We have to think about this in our place. He is our substitute. Jesus did not just die and give himself up in a general sense, just generic sense, 
It's out there in distance. He gave himself up in our place for you. In your place. I should have been the one that was nailed to that cross, and yet Jesus died in my place. His death finished it. Jesus' death is not just a restart, and now you get a clean slate and you can try again. It's finished. Sin, gone. Justification, righteousness, perfection of Christ, freely given. Nothing else is like that. It's done. You might be thinking, oh, how does God grace us or bring me peace? I'm not experiencing that. I'm not seeing that. You don't look inside. You look at Jesus. You want to see the clearest demonstration of God's grace, his offer of peace to you? You look at Jesus on the cross. You see his empty cross. You see the empty tomb. He's done it all. And Jesus enables us and empowers us to give glory to God and to extend grace to others. It's question five. How does that empower me to obey what it says and means? Again, there's no explicit command in this verse, but in light of what Paul has written, and just as Paul has written, as we, like Paul, experience the grace and peace of God in the gospel, and we see all that God has done for us in Jesus, Though we were dead in our sins, that God has made us alive by his grace. That we get to worship and bring glory to God. And we get to extend grace and peace to others. And this happens the more that we experience and behold his beauty. The more that we think on and reflect upon all that Christ has done for us. We come to the foot of the cross and we see his body on the cross on our behalf. We hear his words that, that he has finished it, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that his body was broken on our behalf, that his resurrection is proof that he is who he said he is, that we too can have life after death, hope everlasting, new bodies. We're no longer going to be enslaved to sin and, and this body that's crumbling and sick and prone to cancer and death and acne and suffering and pain. And aging. The more that we experience God's grace and see that he alone is the one who has done everything, the more that we experience joy and see ourselves as the recipients of what he's done. We know that what we've done on our own has failed. We know that we are not awesome. We know that we are not worthy of honor and praise. We're so hypocritical and selfish and judgmental. We know that Jesus alone is the one who is deserving of honor and praise. And we did not do anything. Jesus has done it all. And as we do that, as we, I really believe, as we make that true to our hearts, we worship. It happens. We praise. We see Jesus' glory and we praise. We know no one can do what Jesus has done for me. No one's worthy of my praise like Jesus is. No career, no job, no person, no athletic team, no concert venue, no rock star. Jesus is better. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is on most glorious. 
He's the only one that if we obtain him will truly satisfy us and if we fail him, forgives us. And we'll respond not only in worshiping God, but giving grace and peace that we've received to others. We want to give grace and peace to others because we realize that there was nothing good in us that was warranting of God's love and his affection and and the peace and Jesus dying for our, our behalf. And we want to continually give grace to others as a way of being his representative and his ambassador and, and being a demonstration of that very grace that we've received. Amen? Amen? So when someone is mean or grumpy or rude to us, when someone cuts us off on the highway, we don't respond with cussing them out and getting angry and, you idiot, how could you do this? We take that moment to think and remember the gospel. I was not worthy of God's affection and grace. I'm no better than this man. I've been so benefited by God's grace, I want to extend that same grace to others. When someone is late to a meeting or doesn't live up to our expectations, we give grace because we know that we have failed and we haven't lived up to God's expectations. When our coworkers and and workplaces are full of chaos and discord, We come in bringing peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought such great peace to us. We want to extend and overflow that peace to others. When our spouse doesn't love us or treat us with respect and kindness or when our kids are constantly disobeying and rebelling against us, we take these moments to remember the gospel. So my friends, as we've begun and continue through our study through the book of Galatians, I pray that you will stay and gather with us. I pray that this truth that you find in Galatians will change your life, that you will see the grace of God, if not for the first time, more deeply and more clearly, and that it will overflow in your life, that you will experience true freedom and joy that the the gospel of grace brings. And I pray that as we continue to ponder and reflect and examine our hearts as the gospel is proclaimed, and as we read and study this message for ourselves, that it would lead us to worship and bring glory to God forever as he is the only one who's worthy of it and we would be led to increasingly give the same grace and peace that we've received to others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.